I'd ask that you turn in your Bibles to Daniel chapter 3. If you don't have a Bible, uh, there should be some Bibles at the back on a shelf there, and I'd encourage you to get one. Uh, we'll be looking at, at Daniel chapter 3, which is a bit of a, a longer chapter, and so you'll be helped if you've got your Bible open uh, in, in front of you. Now, if you're trying to locate Daniel in your Bibles, um, it's going to be about two-thirds of the way through. And this is a biblical book that follows the key events of the 6th century Jewish prophet Daniel. Daniel was in exile, having been uh, plucked from his home in Jerusalem uh, by the invading armies of Babylon, and he's brought to Babylon where he's going to be employed in the courts of the king as a royal counselor or advisor. And there in the courts of uh, the Babylonian king, Daniel and three of his fellow exiles, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, are faced with all sorts of, of pressures to forsake the Lord their God and to conform to the values and religion of Babylon. So in Daniel, we have these young men who are living in a world that does not uh, share their convictions about who God is and how they should live. They're living in a world that does not uh, share their fundamental assumptions about uh, the world and how it works. And these are young men who are surrounded by people who would like nothing better than to see them uh, put their beliefs aside or to, uh, to, to, to uh, have them changed uh, or, or to be ruined. And so that's one of the major questions of the book of Daniel. How does someone stay faithful to the Lord God in that context? And that's the question that's being answered again in Daniel chapter 3, uh, our passage this morning. In Daniel 3, uh, the pressures to conform to the ways of the world are immense. We see that faithfulness to the Lord uh, in the world can oftentimes uh, bring us to very difficult places. However, the message of Daniel 3 is that God will be with his people to deliver them, even as our ultimate commitment to him brings us into the furnace of the world's displeasure. So let's read Daniel chapter 3 together. King Nebuchadnezzar made an image of gold whose height was 60 cubits and its breadth 6 cubits. He set it on the plain of Dura in the province of Babylon. Then King Nebuchadnezzar sent to gather the satraps, the prefects, and the governors, the counselors, the treasurers, the justices, the magistrates, and all the officials of the provinces to come to the dedication of the image that King Nebuchadnezzar had set up. And then the satraps, the prefects, and the governors, the counselors, the treasurers, the justices, the magistrates, and all the officials of the provinces gathered for the dedication of the image that King Nebuchadnezzar had set up. And they stood before the image that Nebuchadnezzar had set up. And the herald proclaimed aloud, You are commanded, O peoples, nations, and languages, that when you hear the sound of the horn, pipe, lyre, trigon, harp, bagpipe, and every kind of music, you are to fall down and worship the golden image that King Nebuchadnezzar has set up. And whoever does not fall down and worship shall immediately be cast into a burning, fiery furnace. Therefore, as soon as as soon as all the people heard the sound of the horn, pipe, lyre, trigon, harp, bagpipe, and every kind of music, all the peoples, nations, and languages fell down and worshipped the golden image that King Nebuchadnezzar had set up. Therefore, at, at that time, certain Chaldeans came forward and maliciously accused the Jews. They declared to King Nebuchadnezzar, O king, live forever! You, O king, have made a decree that every man who hears the sound of the horn and pipe, lyre, trigon, harp, bagpipe, and every kind of music shall fall down and worship the golden image. And whoever does not fall down and worship shall be cast into a burning, fiery furnace. 
Now there are certain Jews whom you appointed over the affairs of the province of Babylon, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. These men, O king, pay no attention to you. They do not serve your gods or worship the golden image that you have set up. Then Nebuchadnezzar, in furious rage, commanded that Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego be brought. So they brought these men before the king. Nebuchadnezzar answered and said to them, Is it true, O Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, that you do not serve my gods or worship the golden image that I have set up? Now if you are ready when you hear the sound of the horn, pipe, lyre, trigon, harp, bagpipe, and every kind of music to fall down and worship the image that I have made, well and good. But if you do not worship, you shall be immediately cast into a burning, fiery furnace. And who is the God who will deliver you out of my hands? Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego answered and said to the king, O Nebuchadnezzar, we have no need to answer you in this matter. If this be so, our God, whom we serve, is able to deliver us from the burning, fiery furnace, and he will deliver us out of your hand, O king. But if not, be it known to you, O king, that we will not serve your gods or worship the golden image that you have set up. Then Nebuchadnezzar was filled with fury, and the expression of his face was changed against Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. He ordered the furnace heated seven times more than it was usually heated. And he ordered some of the mighty men of his army to bind Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego and to cast them into the burning, fiery furnace. And then these men were bound in their cloaks, their tunics, their hats, and their other garments, and they were thrown into the burning, fiery furnace. Because the king's order was urgent and the furnace overheated, the flame of the fire killed those men who took up Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. And these three men, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, fell bound into the burning, fiery furnace. Then King Nebuchadnezzar was astonished and rose up in haste. He declared to his counselors, Did we not cast three men bound into the fire? And they answered and said to the king, True, O king. And he answered and said, But I see four men unbound, walking in the midst of the fire, and they are not hurt. And the appearance of the fourth is like, the son, like a son of the gods. Then Nebuchadnezzar came near to the door of the burning, fiery furnace, and he declared, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, servants of the Most High God, come out and come here. Then Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego came out from the fire. And the satraps, the prefects, the governors, and the king's counselors, they gathered together and saw that the fire had not any power over the bodies of, the, of those men. The hair of their heads was not singed, their cloaks were not harmed, and no smell of fire had come upon them. Nebuchadnezzar answered and said, Blessed be the God of Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, who has sent his angel and delivered his servants, who trusted in him and set aside the king's command and yielded up their bodies rather than serve and worship any god except their own god. Therefore I make a decree. Any people, nation, or language that speaks anything against the god of Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego shall be torn limb from limb, and their house is laid in ruins, for there is no other god who is able to rescue in this way. And then the king promoted Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego in the province of Babylon. Let's ask for the Lord's help now. Lord, according to your own will, you have uh, brought forth a people by uh, your word. And so, Lord, by that word now, we pray that you would 
build us up in the faith, that we would be rooted and established. We would uh, be the, the sorts of people who hold firm to Christ, even uh, when the world applies all its pressures against us. Pray, Lord, that you would help me now as, as I preach, that you would help us as we hear your word and come beneath it. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. So the towering image that King Nebuchadnezzar set up on the plains of Dura in Babylon is not, you might recall, the first towering image that we encounter in the book of Daniel. In the second chapter of Daniel, Nebuchadnezzar was vexed by a dream uh, that he had in which he encountered this great and mighty uh, image that was both brilliant and fearsome in appearance. Nebuchadnezzar, uh, so disturbed by his dream and wanting to know uh, what it meant, he, he called forth his counselors and, and he withheld the dream from them and demanded that his counselors tell him not only what his dream meant, but what he had in fact dreamed. And it was a challenge that only the living God could meet. And God did meet this challenge. God answered the prayers of Daniel and Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, and he revealed the king's dream and the interpretation. In the dream, Nebuchadnezzar had dreamed uh, this, uh, that there was this great image made of various materials of gold and silver and bronze and iron and clay, and these were, represented the successive kingdoms of the world. And in the dream, Nebuchadnezzar was signified as, as uh, the head of gold. And the dream went on to say that Nebuchadnezzar's kingdom, like the kingdoms that would follow him, uh, would come to an end and they would be replaced by God's everlasting kingdom. Now Nebuchadnezzar is so amazed that God would reveal through Daniel uh, not only his dream but what it meant uh, that he falls upon his face and he exclaims, truly your God is God of gods and Lord of kings and a revealer of mysteries. And, And he promotes Daniel and his friends to positions of great prominence in the kingdom. So with chapter two in mind, it's perhaps jarring to encounter Nebuchadnezzar in chapter 3, constructing this giant idol. We can't say how much time has passed between chapters 2 and 3, but what we can say is that the words that had come forth from Nebuchadnezzar's mouth at the end of chapter 2 were just that. They were mere words. See, Nebuchadnezzar had this uh, remarkable encounter with God, enough uh, so much that he fell upon his face and, and offered some sort of worship but it was a false profession. There was no changed heart here in Nebuchadnezzar. For here we have Nebuchadnezzar constructing this 90-foot high, so that's like uh, three or four times uh, the height probably of this auditorium, Uh, this 90-foot high statue and this nine-foot around statue. Uh, And this is a statue to his greatness and splendor. And the fact that Nebuchadnezzar had made this image entirely of gold was a sign that he didn't believe that God would bring an end to his kingdom. In the dream, he was just the, the head of gold. Uh, there was no sign here of any successive kingdoms. It was all gold. This was Nebuchadnezzar's flashy statement that there would be no kingdom after him. It was as if Nebuchadnezzar had even, uh, hadn't even heard Daniel say, you know, O king, you're a mighty king, but God's placed you on that throne. God has, has put men under you. O Nebuchadnezzar, you're under the Lord. It's like Nebuchadnezzar heard none of that. It just didn't penetrate. 
Nebuchadnezzar was sort of like the, the pathway in the parable of the sower uh, in which Jesus tells in Matthew 13 where, where the word falls, it comes to him through the prophet Daniel, uh, but it just does not penetrate. It is snatched away by the evil one. Now, upon the completion of this towering image of gold, Nebuchadnezzar issues a decree that that rings forth through the kingdom, and it says that all the officials in the kingdom were to join him at the opening worship service. This was going to be a spectacular display of kingdom unity. The the king's musicians would be playing there. Uh, The who's who of the Babylonian political class would be assembled there. And there would be this massive gathering of thousands of people from different races and parts of the kingdom and different languages, and they would come together and they would bow before Nebuchadnezzar's image. And so the people gather by the thousands at the image and the service starts. And all across the plains of Dura, men and women, as they hear the blaring of the instruments, fall upon their faces and worship Nebuchadnezzar's image. See, Daniel wants us to see how extensive the compliance was to the king's command. This was the the whole host of people gathered from various corners of the kingdom. They all fell down and worshipped. What would you do? You're you're standing amidst the throng and the music uh, begins to play and like a sea of dominoes, everyone begins to get down on their knees and you perhaps see your neighbor uh, uh, going down even though she's admitted she's not big on religion, but it seems pragmatic at this point. Notice one of the guys from your office Bible study getting down on his knees. All of a sudden, you're thinking about how Nebuchadnezzar has threatened the furnace for anyone who refuses, and your mind goes to the faces of your kids or your nephews and nieces or your aging parent. What would you do? Everyone else has bowed the knee. Everyone else has complied. No one else seemingly has a problem with it. Or if they did, they've gotten over it. And as the painfully long seconds tick, you know that there's no more time to deliberate. As the eyes of everyone turn to you, noticing your hesitation, what would you do? And part of the problem, of course, is that this uh, scenario, this, this choice feels so distant from us. I mean, thankfully, we don't uh, live in a country where, you know, if we go out to the store, we might uh, be confronted with someone putting a gun to our face saying, turn or die. That's a realistic uh, uh, scenario for many Christians around the world today. But just because the gun isn't leveled at your head or the knife's blade isn't pressed to your throat doesn't mean that we can't understand in some measure or to some degree the dynamic that is at play here. Will you conform? Will you comply? Will you go along? Will you be agreeable? What have you done? When you're sitting in a meeting at work, perhaps uh, with a client, and thinking it's funny he or she misuses the Lord's name. Everyone around the table begins to laugh. In that split second, you need to decide whether you'll bend the knee and worship at the gods of peer approval or career advancement. Or someone makes a joke at someone else's expense, holding up someone else who has been made in the image of God and mocks them. On the one hand, you know that this mockery violates God's commands. It's incredibly displeasing to the Lord who has told us to love our neighbor. And yet you think to yourself, I really don't want to be a wet blanket here. I don't want people to think I'm uptight. I don't want to be that guy. Will you bend the knee to the God of popularity and social acceptance? 
You know, in these cases, though the circumstances are different and though the consequences differ, like Nebuchadnezzar's command, the heart of the question remains, who will you listen to? Who will you obey? Whose approval, God's or man, is most important? Whose displeasure is most important to you? Every day we're confronted by this question. Will we bow in worship at the feet of the gods of the world? Pure approval, pleasure, leisure, comfort, sex, family, money. The world has issued its decree and it tells us, bow, worship these. Although it seemed that on this day all bowed the knee to Nebuchadnezzar's image, there were three exceptions. Some of the king's advisors noticed that Daniel's three friends, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, had remained upon their feet. Their praise had been noticeably withheld. They hadn't complied with the command. And here, these ambitious advisors to the king uh, see an opportunity. Don't think it went unnoticed uh, that these young Jewish men had been appointed to high positions in the kingdom. Don't think it went unnoticed by the king's advisors that these men had been fast-tracked for promotion because of how God revealed his dream to Nebuchadnezzar. Right? That sort of fortuitous advancement doesn't go unnoticed in the hyper-political, cutthroat world of the king's court. You can almost hear the advisors vent their frustrations about how these snot-nosed Jewish kids have snuck their way up the ranks. But now, they see an opportunity. They have a way of taking care of things. These advisors come to the king and and they report to him that Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, and notice they can't help but but, uh, mention again that they were inexplicably promoted, that Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, they're not worshiping. They pay no attention to you. They don't serve your gods or worship the golden image, Nebuchadnezzar. The king is furious and he has the men brought before him and he gives them an ultimatum, fall in worship or fall in the furnace. And we see Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, as we see them standing there before the king, we see this uh, impressive picture of courageous biblical conviction. The men have resolved that they will not bow the knee to the king's image. They won't forsake the Lord, but they give this awesome response. Oh, Nebuchadnezzar, we have no need to answer you in this matter. If this be so, our God, whom we serve, is able to deliver us from the burning fiery furnace, and he will deliver us out of your hand. But even if he chooses not to spare us, O king, we will not serve your gods, and we will not bend the knee to the golden image. Let's just note three things about the men's faithful testimony to King Nebuchadnezzar. First, these young men know their God and they know his precepts. They know his commands. They know that God has forbidden his people from making images to worship or bow down to in the second commandment. They know that this is idolatry. They know that their God who made the heavens and the earth, he's a jealous God and he does not permit these counterfeits. The resolve of these young men was grounded in the fact that they knew what God had said in the scriptures. They knew, therefore, that this was a serious matter. This was a key decision point. This wasn't just something that they could go along with. So we know, just, we note here that if we wish to be people of resolve, if we wish to, to raise children of, of biblical convictions, if we wish to encourage our friends and our family to be people who are faithful to the Lord under pressure, 
It begins by studying the scriptures to know who God is and to know where we must take our stands. That's why Bible study and catechism classes and listening attentively to sermons and family worship are so important. It's one of the reasons, knowing the word of of God, we are rooted and grounded so that we can resist the threats and temptations of the world. So they know the Lord's precepts. They also know the Lord's power. They're convinced of it. They know that God put Nebuchadnezzar in the throne. They know that he is mighty and able to intervene. They know Nebuchadnezzar is just an instrument in the hands of the Lord. And if God should choose to extend their lives, he can do it. He could quash Nebuchadnezzar. He could set uh, these men free. He could do as he pleases. And if it pleases them, him, they say, he will deliver them from the flames. But they know the Lord's precepts. They know the Lord's power. But there's also something we should know that they don't know. They don't know how the providence of the Lord will play itself out. In other words, they're not sure whether God would apply his power for their rescue in this particular case. But that knowledge is not necessary for faithfulness. Indeed, their faithfulness is demonstrated that while they know the Lord uh, can work, even if they don't know how he will work, they will trust him. And they will trust that he will do what is right. Now the refusal of the men to bow to Nebuchadnezzar's demands sends him yet again, this is the third time in two chapters, into a rage. He will show these men. He will uh, have the, the furnaces fired up as hot as they can possibly go. Nebuchadnezzar's raging response here reminds us of how the world responds to those who will not yield to its ways. Those who take a stand upon obedience to God, to his scriptures, will evoke anger and hostility. It's not just here in Daniel, but, but think of, of New Testament examples. Think, think of, of how the, the religious leaders responded to Jesus. Think of how the Jewish leaders were enraged when the, the apostles would not stop talking about Jesus and how they sought murderously to put them to death. Think of, of in the New Testament, Acts 7 and Stephen, who is maliciously accused and brought before the council. And after he gives his defense, the book of Acts tells us that the people were enraged and they ground their teeth and they ran at Stephen, screaming to put him to death. Where does that anger come from? And we see here in Daniel the truth of Jesus' warning in John 15 that the world will hate the people of God even as they hated Jesus himself. The world, Jesus says in John 3, hates the light and does not come to the light lest his works should be exposed. So we shouldn't be surprised that the world hates us. We shouldn't be surprised when the fiery trial comes because we love and submit to the Lord. We must recognize the cost of obedience. And as Nebuchadnezzar's rage boils over, he had Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego bound and dragged into uh, one of these large furnaces. And uh, these furnaces were likely used to make bricks in Babylon. It probably would have been a long and narrow, sort of like a, a railway tunnel that was stopped at both ends with uh, viewports and vents along the way so that people could look into it. And these furnaces could burn as hot as 1,800 degrees Fahrenheit. And Nebuchadnezzar wanted these young men to feel each and every degree possible. And so at the king's command, the fire is stoked so hot that the mighty men, the soldiers who are commanded to bring Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego to the flames, they're killed by the flames themselves. 
It's funny that Nebuchadnezzar could not protect the men who were true to his wicked orders. The question is, would the Lord protect the men who were faithful to his commands? So after Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego were toppled into the furnace, the king suddenly leaps from his seat because he's seen something. Amidst the flames, he sees the men who had been bound walking about freely in the raging furnace. And what's more, he, he notices there's not just three men in there any longer, but there's four. This four. There's a fourth man who's not like Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. He appears to Nebuchadnezzar like some sort of divine being. And so Nebuchadnezzar races to the door and calls out, Shadrach, Meshach, Abednego, come out. And the men emerge from the fire and the king's officials huddle around and it appears that the men have, not, uh, have emerged without so much as a, a suntan. I mean, their, their hair is not singed. Their clothes not burned. They don't smell like smoke. And there Nebuchadnezzar, who arrogantly had said, what God could possibly deliver you from my hands, now cries out in amazement. This miraculous deliverance is his answer. The God of Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, the God of Israel, is the one who can deliver from his hands. Now let's pause for a second to consider the question, who was this fourth man in the furnace? Three went into the furnace, three came out, but who was the fourth man who Nebuchadnezzar said was like a son of the gods? Now, some have argued that this was an appearance of, of Christ, the second person of the Trinity before his incarnation, and perhaps that's possible, but I think the stronger case is made that this was an angel from the Lord. For this is what Nebuchadnezzar goes on to call this fourth man in verse 28, and I think there's support for this in the fact that in Daniel 6, which is a parallel passage, uh, speaks of Daniel being saved from the lion's den by an angel of the Lord as well. And this is how angels are, are spoken of elsewhere in Scripture. Hebrews 1.14 says that God sends his ministering spirits, his angels, to care for the people of God. But the point remains the same in either case. Though God did not keep his loved ones from the furnace, he was certainly with them in the furnace. God does not spare his uh, people from all trials, and this should elicit some nods. Now, especially when it comes to suffering for obedience sake. God makes no promises that he will keep his people from hard things. He doesn't promise he'll keep us from the flames of the furnace. And yet, he was with Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego in the furnace. You know, as I was studying this passage, you know, the question that was in my mind, why else is the fourth man here? Why was he seen at all by Nebuchadnezzar? Certainly it was in God's power to miraculously intervene. He could, uh, God, if he wanted to, could have extinguished the fire uh, easily. He could have kept the men from burning easily. The fourth man was not necessary for that. If the point of the story was simply that God delivers his people, which ultimately he does, that fourth man uh, is not necessary. But the fourth man, this angel appears to Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego and to Nebuchadnezzar because God intends for us to see that he comes alongside his people in the furnace of persecution and affliction. That he's present with us. The point of Daniel 3 is more than just a miraculous deliverance. It's about a delivering God who at the same time is present with his people in the flames. Now, the Lord God, uh, that the Lord God is with his people in a world not their own, even when obedience is costly, especially when obedience is costly uh, and, and when it brings upon uh, uh, God's people the wrath of the world, this was a message that the first hearers of Daniel needed to know. 
This was a message for them because as they lived in a world surrounded by bigger pagan nations, stronger nations that sought to apply pressures to conform, to change, to forsake the Lord, they needed to know the Lord would be with them in the furnace. In Isaiah 43, which we read, written uh, well before Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego were taken into exile, God had promised that when his exiles His exiled people passed through the waters and the rivers. When they walked through the fire and the flame, he would be with them to deliver them. And our passage, Daniel 3, shows the reality of that promise. It shows that in action. Truly God was with his loved ones, with his people in exile. And as God's people after Daniel, living in a hostile world with hostile powers, this promise of God's presence with his people remained true as it does for God's people today. You know that an ultimate commitment to the God of the Bible continues to invoke uh, the ire and anger of the world. If you're, living, if you're a Christian living in Nigeria and you convert to Christianity, you will likely lose your family and your friends and your business and maybe even your life. Right? This passage says, the Lord has promised to be with his people while they're in the furnace of murderous opposition. Or culturally in the West, of course, a major focus of antagonism uh, for the church is the Bible's teaching on sexuality. To hold to a a biblical view uh, and to express a biblical view uh, winsomely, with love, and with respect for those we disagree with, still invokes great rage and cultural hostility. Your reputations can be in, in shambles, torn to shreds if you take a stand for this. And yet the Lord has promised to be with his church in the furnace of cultural fury. And we can, of course, feel the displeasure and ire of the world in in other ways that are closer to home. When our family wants to uh, uh, plan something on Sunday and we say, well, we'd love to attend, but we can't attend because we don't want to miss worship. And they're so frustrated that we wouldn't be more flexible. And then when we have to deal with the snarky comments at the next family function, or when obedience to the Lord brings, uh, makes your marriage difficult or makes being a mother or a father or a child difficult. In Daniel 3, the Lord has promised to be with you in the furnace of family conflict when it's for obedience' sake. When the anger and hostility of the world around us is, is directed toward us for our devotion to, to Christ, it can be painful and yet we need to know that the Lord promises to be with us in the fiery trial to deliver us. 1 Peter 4.14 has this wonderful uh, uh, comment that uh, if you are insulted for Christ, you are still blessed because the Spirit of God, the Spirit of glory rests upon you. And we have an even more vivid evidence of God's intention to be with us as we live in a world not our own. And as we face the trials of obedience... Because we have the fact of the incarnation. That is, we can point to God the Son, very God of very God, who stooped down to us and took upon himself our humanity and stepped into the pressures and temptations of the world as one of us. Jesus, like the fourth man in the furnace, is to us a sign that God is not a casual observer to the trials of obedience. Rather, in the incarnation, Jesus, as the book of Hebrews says, uh, uh, comes to us and and is tempted in every respect that we are, and yet was without sin. Jesus, too, like Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, faced the temptation to bend his knee and worship to someone else. 
In Matthew chapter 4, the ruler of this world, Satan, takes Jesus up to the mountain and he offers to Jesus uh, the kingdoms of the world. Says, Jesus, all these can be yours. And what's more, he offers Jesus a way to escape the fire of God's wrath against sin, which Jesus knew would be poured out on him on the cross. There's the devil to Jesus. The kingdoms, the glory, no cross, no suffering, no sin to bear, no wrath to endure, just one condition. Fall in worship. Bend the knee, Jesus, and you won't have to suffer. What a tempting offer. You have to bypass the most excruciating thing imaginable if you just do one seemingly small thing. But it was no small thing. This temptation would sound familiar to Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, wouldn't it? Yet Jesus, as he faced this temptation, knew that obedience to his Father would mean to enter into the furnace of the Father's wrath against sin. And he knew even more than that, that he would enter into the furnace there and there would be no help. There would be no angel sent to care for him as he hung upon the cross. There would be no help from the Father. The cost of obedience for the Son of God was that he would go to the cross to be afflicted and forsaken. And yet he would not fall down and worship. Why did he do it? He did it for people like us. People like us who far too often are not like Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. People uh, like us who fail at faithfulness in the boardroom or the classroom or the kitchen table. See, Jesus would go into the furnace alone. He would endure the wrath of God alone so that we who deserved it wouldn't have to. And he did it so that you and I, faithless, undeserving sinners, could be reconciled to God. He did it so that God might be your God and that you might be his redeemed child. He did it so that you who would otherwise so easily forsake him would not have to endure the fiery trial alone. He did it so that when obedience would take you, even through the valley of the shadow of death, you would not have to fear because he would be with you. Samuel Rutherford, a a Scottish pastor from long ago, spoke of Christ's presence with him in the furnace of trial. Rutherford was well acquainted with trials. He uh, took a stand for obedience and was exiled for it, forced to leave his home and leave his church, to leave the things he held dear. He wrestled uh, just with the depression over this. And yet in one of his letters, he wondered about Christ's kindness to him, a sinner, a kindness that extended even to him in his trials. Speaking uh, in this letter, he spoke of, of how Christ had drawn near to him in his trial of obedience as he was on his own in exile. And he said, Christ is with us in our affliction. He said that's, that's like, uh, it means that, that Christ comes alongside of us like a child walking through the waters. When the waters get deep so that the child cannot touch the ground they, and, and they're put to swimming, Christ, God with us, puts his hand under our chin and keeps us from plunging beneath the depths. This is the picture of Daniel chapter 3. God has not promised to spare his people from the trials. He may not spare us from the furnace, and yet he will carry us through the flames, for he is faithful in the furnace. Let's pray. Oh, Father in heaven, 
You've told us in your word that we should not be surprised when fiery trials overcome us, when we suffer for obedience sake. Lord, uh, too often our, our, uh, we're we so weak. Uh, we are so prone to, to faithlessness. And yet here we have this incredible promise that whatever trial, whatever pressure, whatever discomfort may come, you will be with us. Whether that be the, the gun to our head telling us to convert or whether that be the, the, the pressures and, and the real pain of being socially ostracized. Or it's all worth it because you're with us. You don't abandon us. You don't forsake us. So Lord, I thank you for Jesus, the one who has made sure that that would be true, who has brought us to yourself so that we know that nothing, no tribulation, no trial, nothing will separate us from you and your love. Lord, we thank you for this and we pray it in Christ's name. Amen.